0: Um, the barrio assemblies and these like you know grassroots neighborhood organizations a lot of these were sponsored by the church
2: what does it mean to say that the christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there um you're always Uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects.
0: Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico. And I'm Dean Detloff. This week on the show, we've got Lydia Wiley-Cullerman. She's back and better than ever. You might remember her from the episode we did about G's magazine, uh, I guess, in 2020 sometime. Uh, Who who knows? I think so. (laughs) It's an illusion. Yeah, I think so too. Um, Yeah, she's back with a uh, cool interview about her new book called The Sandbox Revolution, Raising Kids in a Just World. It's a really neat anthology with so many um, very wise and interesting voices about uh, parenting and and what to do with your your little rugrats in this awful world that we live in and how to make it a better place. Um, It is a very good book. I I think I've read it all over this past week, and it is definitely something to think about Uh, if you have kids or even if you don't. It's a book that will make you, uh, I think, reflect deeply on the ways that maybe you were brought up. um, And uh, as Lydia says, uh, express gratitude for for some of that. Uh, And if not, if not gratitude, then it will definitely make you think more about the future and what uh, activism in the long haul with a family might look like.
1: Um, Dean, anything you want to add? Uh, yeah, sure. I'll say um, it is definitely a book for parents, but not only for parents. I don't have kids. I say this on the show pretty early on. You can hear Lydia pitch it to you. If you don't have kids, too, she'll uh, do a good job. But coming from me, uh, it was really fun to read. I super enjoyed it. Um, I think it's important for people to also take the time to, to get into that world a little bit if you don't have kids to try to figure out what's going on with other folks. So I appreciated that. Um, and I should add, too. We mentioned uh, Lydia spoke with us once earlier about G's Magazine. If you don't know what that is, it is a fantastic publication. It comes out quarterly in beautiful print editions that go right to your door, and they're all very cool. Uh, you can subscribe at org. The subscription is only $39, which is absolutely bonkers. It's like it is. It should be It's the best. Yeah. Best
0: magazine in the world. And it's it's so cheap to even get at your door. Yeah, it's going to want to get this one. You're going
1: to want it. Um, I'm a section editor there, which means I write one page and sometimes more in every issue. Matt has been <laughs> published there, too. And so have many, many, many other people, uh, some of whom have been on the show in the past as well. And you can also pitch them. You should look out for uh, um, the pitches that they they send and you can find more of that on the website of gsmagazine.org
0: gs does such a good job of of gathering together like very diverse and interesting voices to tell you something that you just did not know about the world and it's a, a really uh, a really wonderful thing to read um when it comes out also getting published in gs was one of my life goals and now it's over so i can <laughs> kind of just uh I can stop writing and just kind of take a big nap now.
1: That's it. You know that's what? Nice. Uh, a funny G story. And I'll say it now because I know Lydia is going to be listening to this beginning and she'll get a kick out of it. Um, I, uh, I thought Jesus was the coolest thing in the world when I was a younger Christian because it was like the Christian adbusters, I guess. Um, that's what I <laughs> thought of it in my brain, uh, maybe rightly or wrongly. Um, and I was so desperate to get published in it. And I pitched to it a few times and I never got accepted. And a friend of mine, actually, Josiah Daniels, who we had on the show not too long ago, got published in it before me. And I remember telling him I was very jealous. And now I'm an editor there. So what a cool thing. It's been uh, around as long as I've been thinking about being a Christian in the world, I guess, uh, in a a kind of social justice way. So good that they're still keeping that fire burning and uh, check it out. Check it out. All right, let's go to the podcast. Thanks for coming back to the show, Lydia. I think most of our listeners should remember you when we had you back on to talk about G's not too long ago, uh, even in the last year, I I think. Uh, But for those who don't remember you or haven't uh, heard of you before, could you give us a quick introduction to who you are and what you're all about?
2: Yeah, thanks, Mandy. And I'm really grateful to be back with both of you to get some time to spend together. Um, Yes, I am a writer, editor, activist, and mother. From Detroit, Michigan. Um, My partner Aaron and I are raising our boys who are eight and five um, on the same block that I grew up on and just a few miles from where my dad grew up. Um, I'm also an editor and in a lot of ways I think about that um, work as being a question asker and a story gatherer Um, and one of the really fun places that I get to do that work is with G's magazine. Um, which is a quarterly print magazine at the intersection of art, activism, and faith. Um, and the other place I've gotten to do this editing joyful work is on this new book, uh, The Sandbox Revolution, Raising Kids for a Just World.
0: Yeah, thanks so much. It's a great introduction. Just going to give a quick plug here for G's Magazine. If uh, if our listeners are not <laughs> subscribers already, this is your chance. Go do that. It's such a good magazine. Good for your soul in the best way. Um all right. Well, whenever we have authors on the podcast, which you are um, and an editor of this book as well, uh, we always ask them to give uh, an elevator pitch for the book uh, or, you know, the the anthology in this case. So could you give us a pitch for the Sandbox Revolution? What's it all about?
2: Um, it's an anthology that's written by uh, an amazing circle of human beings um, who are also farmers and pastors and organizers, artists and activists. Um, and each of them is doing that work alongside intimately being connected to the lives of children. Um, So it's a book for folks who have a hunger for a just world um, and are asking questions about how those commitments play out in raising kids and how we invite children into those struggles. Um, So there's chapters on areas including money, education, spirituality, anti-racism, patriarchy, resistance, community, and so on.
0: I really appreciated in your uh, in, in the big uh, in the big pitch about what you're about. <laughs> you said that um, editors are kind of gatherers of stories, and I appreciate the way that you put that, um, especially given the way that you've structured the book. Um, in, in the very intro, you know, that's what you said. <laughs> you said that uh, you wanted to learn about like parenting, and in, in light of um, I don't know the very weird and bad world uh, that we live in, and also activism. So you you called everyone up <laughs> that you knew that you wanted to uh, you know whose story you wanted to gather. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Like, who who did you include in the book? Um, how did they get in there? What's what's the the big story behind some of those people?
2: Yeah, I think some of them are folks who I've known since before I was born, um, who I have a lot of gratitude and respect and love for. Um, some are folks who are people that I'm watching parenting right now. Who. Um, I'm following in their footsteps and collecting bits of wisdom from them, um, and others are people that I've um, admired more from a distance, um, but are all just doing really interesting and unique work. Um, and yeah, it's a it's a great group of people from all over, uh, both the U.S. and Canada. There's a lot of um, intergenerational. Um span that they cover, so there's grandparents who are writing, and there are folks who are um just pregnant writing, so it sort of spans the the time of of children. Um, and also, there's also an ache in me always that like a book is only so long for every person in here, there are six more people that I'd love to ask because there's just so much wisdom from folks who are parenting. Um, but yeah, it's a great group of people. That's so cool. It definitely comes
1: through, that uh, sense of connection and, and intimacy, and it's a very grounded kind of text uh, in a way that's really refreshing, especially for that, that subject matter. Um, you know, some of our listeners who don't have children might wonder why they should uh, listen to an episode like this or read an anthology about raising kids if they don't have children or don't intend to, so I thought we should at least get that out uh, up front here. Um, so, for instance, I don't have children, but I really appreciated that I felt like I could find some insight into how to relate to people in my life who do have kids as well as the kids that are in my life. So uh, can you talk a little bit of baby about how uh, what this book might have to offer uh, everybody who's involved in social justice spaces?
2: Yes. I think that question is so important. Um, and uh, while I do think that the book it will be sort of most practical for people who are currently raising kids, I really hope that it is a book that serves a wider community than that. Um, And I think about it in a few ways. Um, The first is that all of us who are concerned about social justice, we're struggling for communities in our midst, and we're also struggling for the generations to come. So we're loving children and children's children, whether it looks like holding a baby in the middle of the night, um, or marching in the streets. Um, second, um, family greatly affects how we see the world and the values that we carry. And I think that the book offers a chance to both look at the generations to come, um, but also to look at the ways that we were all raised, um, to look back with gratitude, um, but also to see the ways that the powers and principalities creep up at our dining room table, or. Racism sneaks into our bedtime stories or how we carry intergenerational traumas in our bodies. Um, and the book offers stories of transformation, of seeing, of healing. And lastly, I think so much depends on how we define family, um, who's family, who's included, um, who's raising kids. Um, And I really reject the idea of the nuclear family and that this is a book that's just for parents, um, but that we're including folks in our families who don't have kids uh, because our kids are stronger, more amazing people, um, the wider that we define family, the more that we welcome the love of community onto our kids. Um, I think I think about my own kids and um, they have four really amazing grandmothers, um, each who are unique and loving. And I so often forget that not a single one of them is related by blood, <laughs> that one of them is from my dad uh, being remarried. One of them is my partner's mother. And two of them are folks who don't have kids, but we've named and claimed as grandmothers. And um, it's just a blessing to to everyone involved. And so all of us touch children um, and touch their lives in one way or another. Um, So I hope that this book finds um, home and hope for everyone. Um, And also, you know, Dean or Matt, if either of you would like to be um, Uncle Dean or Uncle Matt, you know, we can say the (laughs) word and we'll widen our hearts and definition of family a little bit more because I think all of our all of us need that.
0: Not many people know this, but uh, behind the scenes, of the Magnificat, I'm always calling Dean my uncle. It's such a weird <laughs> thing. He's younger than me,
1: <laughs> but he is. He's he's always Uncle Dean to me. That's, That's right. what I'm always saying.
2: We'll we'll take it up. We'll all call him Uncle Dean.
1: You know, my uh, my family is like very wild and full of all kind of uh, mixed marriages and generations, et cetera. So I have actually been an uncle as long as I can remember my conscious life. So I'm, I've am i been around the block. I've been an uncle this whole time. Uh, believe it or not, you're all welcome to call me Uncle Dean. Yeah,
0: that's why you're so good at it. You have so much experience. <laughs> well, Lydia, I appreciate you. Ah, it's such a cool construction of the idea of family, I think, in the book. Um, and It's it's a way helpful and more expansive way of thinking about it. Um. You know, OK, so I am a parent. I have a kid. He's great. But um, I've read my fair, my fair share of like uh, of parenting books or I don't know, articles about parenting or whatever. Um, And I guess I, I want to stress how um different this book is than that. It's not like, you know, straightforward advice about how you should do X, Y and Z thing, but it's about like, you know, very expansive topics around, like you said, money and activism and white supremacy. Um, embedded in the in the narratives of people's lives. And I think it's really powerful for that reason. Um, And I I think the word that Dean used earlier was intimate. I think that's exactly right. It is a very intimate book um, and good for everybody. So I'm really into it. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, all all that being said, kind of pivoting a bit here, Lydia, I I think that you're such a good person to put together this kind of book um, because your family, um, you know, your dad and you as well, (laughs) have uh, so much experience doing activist work together, um, you know, I think that that's something that comes through in G's, but it comes through in this book. I think really explicitly as well. Um, there's this whole chapter in in the book too, where your dad's talking about you know reflecting on your decision to do like Christian peacemaker teams in in Palestine, and such a wild thing to read from his perspective mm-hmm. and very fascinating. So I mean, I think that you know your your experience um, in you know being a parent and also doing activist work, but also your family's like generational experience in that is really. Um, Inspiring and informative. I think of the type of parent I would want to be for sure. I also can't get away from the idea of how different it is from my like personal experience growing up. Uh, I have you know no parents uh, interested in anything political. So I, I don't know um, what did coming up in an activist family look like for you, um, and how are you negotiating those experiences into the relationship with your own your own children?
2: Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot lately. That I think that that is one of the strands of this book. Um, Is about offering gratitude for the ways that I was raised and honoring those traditions and communities that have been doing the work for a long time. Um, I'm so grateful for the ways that I was raised. Um, I was raised in sort of an unintentional community that surrounded the Catholic Worker in Detroit. Um, And in the 1980s, there were lots of young folks who were worshiping at the Catholic Worker and organizing together. And they all started falling in love and getting married. Um, And they were asking, how do we not let kids be a reason to flee from justice work? How do we stay in Detroit, continue activism and raise kids? Um, So we ended up having like 15 households on the same block together in Southwest Detroit and about 20 kids growing up together. Um, So we would go to mass together on Sunday evenings in the living room at the Catholic Worker and we went to protest together and we played on the street Um, and all of our families were committed to some sort of simple living. Um, It was pretty amazing. Um, And as I think back on it, there's sort of a few strands um, that really stick out to me. Um, One is around economics. Um, And, you know, there was a commitment to living simply. Um, And for some of the parents, including my own, there was a commitment to war tax resistance, that they weren't going to pay any taxes that would go towards war making. And most of the time, that meant living below taxable income. Um, And so sometimes that meant they would take a lower salary than was offered for work, or they would work part-time jobs. Um, And I think there ended up being, I mean, so much benefit for the kids who were raised um, with that in multiple ways. And one of those being that there were a lot of parents who had time and who were around and could spend that um, with us in the neighborhood. And I think as I've gotten older, um, it's allowed me some freedom from feeling addicted or controlled by capitalism to think outside the box when it comes to work and money and how much I need. And also I know that questions around money and debt and who has choice and all of that is fraught with legacies of racial and economic injustice. And I don't take that lightly. Um, I also learned the rhythm of the liturgical year by where we put our bodies. Um, So we would spend Monday evenings in Advent every year, um, vigiling outside of Williams International that was making Um, cruise missile engines. And so we would light candles year after year after year um, protesting nuclear weapons. And then, you know, we would spend Good Friday walking the streets of Detroit asking where injustice and crucifixion was happening in our moment. And so I learned with my body um, a faith that could never be separated from justice. Um, Another Piece that my parents were really good at was around truth telling, um, and my dad writes about this in his chapter too. That when I was four, my parents went to went to Palestine with an interfaith human rights delegation, um, and they were going to travel into the West Bank and into Gaza, um, and there was you know was some risk there, um, and so I stayed behind with my grandma. But before they left, my dad pulled out a cassette player and. Recorded, you know, a love letter to me, and I I still have that tape. Um, but he shared on it, you know, how much they loved me. Um, he told me why they were going, why it was important, um, and he told me that it could also be dangerous and what could happen. Um, and they just really consistently told us the truth about injustice, and they found words that we could understand and trusted our hearts to hear the truth. And I think. There were parents around them that probably felt like they were crazy um, or putting too much on our shoulders. Um, But looking back, it's one of the things that um, I'm most grateful for. Um, I also was thinking about when I was in third grade, there was a newspaper strike that was happening in Detroit. um, And I missed school every Thursday morning to join the protests. Um, And my sister and I, you know, we made up chants and hand clapping games and made signs and we were learning that showing up for our community for understanding local struggles was just as much a part of our education Um, and we were learning that our beings and our voice and our presence uh, as children mattered Um, so I have so much gratitude Um, and there's so many ways that I hope to carry that on with my own kids um, though it looks different because it's in a different moment. Um, we're still on the same block and my dad and sister and other folks um, that I were was raised with are still on the street. Um, but we're also asking um, the questions, um, you know, like Grace Boggs always says, what time is it on the clock of the world and what does our neighborhood need and who are my kids and what do they need in conversation with these sort of amazing gifts that we were offered um, as kids.
1: It's so cool to hear you talk about all that and especially to share some of those stories growing up. Um, Like Matt said, it's not uh, too similar to my own (laughs) situation, but um, a really fascinating thing to be able to know that those are experiments in people's lives that are taking place and and successfully, you know, uh, in a really, really interesting way. Um, it sort of strikes me, too, that that way of being together and being committed to being together is so um, not only is it, you know, countercultural or something like that, but it is a an act of resistance to capitalism as a sort of economic way of uprooting us and forcing people to leave and move around. I mean, that's the story of my own life, right, is having to move all kinds of places to try to figure out what what's going on, what I'm doing with my life, et cetera, and, and rarely going back to my hometown in, in northern Michigan. Um, could you maybe say a little bit about that? What is it like to, uh, be in the same neighborhood, you know, nearby, not only where you grew up, but your, where your dad grew up, that kind of long chain of memory, uh, tied to a place like Detroit. Um, what, what does that do for you as a a parent thinking through how to, uh, kind of help your, your kids find their own relationship to, uh, that place and that community?
2: Yeah, it's pretty amazing to think. You know, my kids are eating the same dirt than I was eating you know, however <laughs> many years ago. Um, and that there's stories we can tell. And, you know, I know know the stories of people who lived in houses that are now burned down in fields. And I, um, yeah, I've seen the, the neighborhood transition. My dad talks a lot about having a place-based vocation. Um, that Detroit is part of his vocation, um, and that yeah, it's like being listening to what the city needs and and being um, accountable to it and responsive to it is um, is a commitment. Um, so it's super countercultural <laughs> to not to not be moving um, and to keep staying in the same place. Um, but I love it, um, and I love that. My kids have that and just what the neighborhood um, can offer them in terms of relationship and history and story.
0: Yeah, I really want to come back to the idea of place and how important that is, I think, to this book um, and maybe to some of the other things, you know, you've already said. Um, but before we do, I guess I, I want to um, think a little bit more about. Uh, that the idea of, you know, like radical truth telling um, and children, because it's such a it is a very challenging idea, um, something that um, is not easy to do for sure. Um, But it'd be really great to hear you talk a little bit more about that. So your dad ends up playing up, I think, kind of an interesting role. I I don't know, just in the way they think about your family and you um, just because of G's and sort of like the commitment to, um, you know, giving giving him a voice in the magazine stuff. there's a a phrase, I think it was in an, an issue of G's. Um, I couldn't even tell you when now a, a few issues back. Uh, the phrase, though, that came up was um, talking to your kids about why grandpa is going to jail. And, you know, I mean, for civil disobedience. But it's such an interesting thing to have to explain to people who don't understand law, who don't understand like injustice. I mean, or you know, they do, but maybe in a different way. So yeah, I mean, could you talk more about that, that radical truth telling or how you broach conversations like that? Um, that would be, I think, really fascinating to hear more about.
2: Yeah, um, I think it's really important. And I think that there's a temptation to shield the world from um, our kids or to let them be kids for as long as they can. Um, and personally, I don't think that serves our kids. Um that their hearts and minds can handle a lot more than we give them credit for. Um, And in a lot of ways, I think they ask really good questions. And our work as parents is simply to learn how to actually take those questions seriously and answer them um, as fully as we can with language that they can understand um, and also trust them and to know our kids and to, to be able to know to know their heart so that we know we can follow their lead if it does feel like too much. Um, And I think so often those questions around justice happen in, you know, two sentence or half sentence chunks over playing Legos or puddle jumping that, but we just sort of have to engage them whenever they come up as often as we can.
1: Yeah. I think, I mean, it's so, uh, uh antithetical to a lot of parenting, especially a lot of uh, contemporary parenting fads at least that I know about here in Toronto of um, folks maybe being like you said sort of reticent to uh, uh, welcome their kids as full human beings into the world and to try to want to to keep them you know children quote unquote for as long as possible. Um, I'm curious maybe to hear a little more too about how that goes along with ideas of things like safety and risk. Um, which is a a theme that really shines through a lot of these essays in the text. Um, You know, a lot of issues in family life have to do with negotiating safety and security. Um, What's it like to have a a family life that puts the people you love or puts yourself at at risk? You know, what are maybe some responsible or irresponsible ways of figuring out uh, when it might or it might not be a a good decision to put yourself in harm's way or... um, you know, uh, opening your, your family's life up to those kinds of, uh, conflicts that, you know, many of us, uh, don't open ourselves up to precisely because we don't want to, uh, maybe let the whole world in, um, to our own situation. What's that like to kind of navigate all that stuff together?
2: Yeah, I think the questions around safety and security are really interesting, um, and how we define them. Um, and I was kind of reflecting back on my own childhood, um, and I think I always felt safe and secure. And yes, my you know parents were regularly getting arrested and sometimes that meant jail time. And yes, we lived in a neighborhood where my bike got stolen while I was riding it or our garage was burned down, but I never felt unsafe. Um, and I think that the root of my sense of security came from knowing how deeply my parents loved me and how wide the community was around me, who cared for me, and that I could rely on for anything. So, what I understood as safety had nothing to do with white picket fences or money or police, which are, you know, the things that our culture so readily tells us is where our safety comes from. Um, and, you know, again, there's lots of privilege that goes along with these questions, but I think. I think that our our safety is in justice, our safety is in local economy and equity and community. Um and how that's how we keep all kids safe and it's worth taking risks for those and for that work. Um and I also I also just think in terms of movement and how we think about risk is that you know there's a million ways to participate in movement work and we need to find better ways to value all those pieces. So the work of watching kids or running the legal hotline or getting snacks or, um, telling your stories, all part of the work, um, and needing to lean more into trusting people to, to do their own discernment and to, to push themselves and push their comfort zones, but also to make decisions that make sense for their, for their lives, um, and their values. and you know, for me, I think a lot of times those decisions have meant, you know, the risk that I'm taking is strapping my babies to my back and helping do policely is on work or bailing people out of jail rather than choosing to risk arrest myself. Um, Or often it means simply just doing the hard work of like packing snacks and finding mittens and showing up 40 minutes late to an hour long vigil and showing up matters. Um, And I think, I think we have a lot of work to do to create movement spaces that are more welcoming of kids and valuing of kids so that families aren't I mean so often movement spaces is just sort of missing people in their 20s and late 20s and 30s and 40s when they're raising kids um and so I think sort of needing to reevaluate that and think seriously about it
0: yeah I love that um Get kids in the streets with you at marches or, you know, arrange, uh, arranging childcare. I think that's all great. It's so important to, uh, yeah, make space for families and activist spaces. I think that's such a good word. Well, going along with some of the, uh, you know, the themes uh, that you just pulled out here and even some of the themes that Dean was referencing a few minutes ago, um, one issue that comes up a lot in parenting. Uh, in general, but also in this book, is how to negotiate respecting your children's individuality and their autonomy um, and, you know, your own desire to impart some kind of good foundation that hopefully will help them grow. Your dad, a person who we've already, already mentioned a few times here, Bill wrote a chapter in the book where he talks about the gift of baptism as both a gift and a kind of charge. How do you navigate that dialectic between allowing a child some room, and also wanting to help your child navigate a very confusing and challenging world of injustice.
2: Yeah, I think that's really uh, important. And one of the the gifts of putting this book together um, was that we had some grant money. And so we were able to gather the contributors together in a retreat um, and do some writing together. And part of that also was compiling a list of what our shared values are that we hold for this book. Um, And one of those really clear values was, you know, respecting the autonomy of our children and how do we um, hold that contradiction. Um, And I I started the book with um, Khalil Gibran's words that I know mostly from the Sweet Honey and the Rock song on children. Um, And I might might actually just read that. Um, Yeah, it's, it's, your children are not your children. They're the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they're with you, yet they belong not to you. You may give them your love, but not your thoughts, for they have their own thoughts. You may house their bodies, but not their souls, for their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow. which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. You may strive to be like them, but seek not to make them like you. And I felt like that was a really important place to start the book. Um, that we're about to talk about all these things we want to share with our kids, uh, but they're their own beings and it's not our job to make them like us. Um, And Laurel Dykstra shares in their chapter um, that parenting is not movement building. And I I think that's a really, really important thing to name. But it is loving fully the humans that stand before us and holding their hearts and hands as we walk together into the unknown future, that we invite them as partners into this messy world and the messy work of being human. Um, and I think one of the things that I've thought about the most in terms of how I can respect the autonomy of my kids is by letting them guide our activism. That kids understand justice and I, if I listen to them um, and empower them to lead us, I think it's, tra- it's pretty transform- transformative for everyone. Um, Isaac, who's our eight-year-old, is really deeply grieving and raging and passionate about climate change and human impact on the Earth. Um, and he's pushing Aaron and my hearts um, more fully into that work and helping us ask questions about how we shift our lives. Um, and the other thing that I think about that is from my own experience. And so from as a child, um, I was always included in the work of activism. But I never felt forced into it. Um, and as a kid, I didn't yet know who I was or what my values would be. Um, but I remember the moment when it did become mine, um, the moment I stepped into knowing that this is who I am and how I wanted to live. Um, and that, that happened for me sort of my sophomore year of high school. Um, when I was 12, my mom was diagnosed with brain cancer um, and she died seven and a half years later. And so we were sort of living in this constant up and down of whether she was living or dying. Um, And in the midst of that, my sophomore year of high school was when September 11th happened. Um, And I remember so clearly being home and feeling so much sense of the sacredness of life and so much love um, for my mom and seeing how much pain one death caused a community and how far that rippled. And then on the other hand, I'm watching the news, and I'm seeing all this collective national grief really quickly becoming manipulated into rage and revenge and bombing and watching, um, watching the bombing of thousands of people in Afghanistan and Iraq. And that's when it really hit me really deeply um, and suddenly. Nonviolence clicked really deeply in me, Um, and I had never felt like my parents forced their beliefs on me. But when that time came, and I saw the world, and I felt that crisis, I had all of these strands and these stories and these memories and these embodied experiences that I could lean on and claim, um, and could take root in my in my bones. Um, So I think that I think what we try to offer our children are those strands those bits of stories and history and experiences and relationships so that they have them when they begin to ask their own questions about who they are.
0: Wow. What a good word. I think that is just a really fantastic way to put it of, of you know, get, giving them these threads and uh, seeing what, you know, they grasp onto and, and what works. I, I think that's fantastic. Um, I would love to talk more about that, but I feel like we have other questions and I really want to talk about them as well. So um I guess I'll kind of pivot here. I want to take a second and focus in on this sentence that is in the introduction of the book. I think that uh, well, I'll read it here in just a second. But I think the sentence really marks some of the impetus behind the, the book itself. So I'll, I'll read the sentence and we we can talk through it a little bit. You write, what does it mean to raise two white boys in a world seeping with patriarchy and white supremacy? How will I invite them into the work of smashing the system and loving the hard work of resistance that will liberate us? Just as a fellow parent, I feel this deeply as well. We can uh, talk through some of the specifics in, in a little bit, maybe. But uh, I don't know. What were your big takeaways from the book? What did you learn? How do you answer this question?
2: Yeah, it's such a big <laughs> question. Um, and it's it's so interesting to think, you know, this book went to print really before um the racial justice uprisings of the summer, or before the um, riot at the Capitol, um, and I continue to just feel really haunted by the the image of you know a dozen white men struggling to lift this giant cross in front of the U.S. Capitol during the insurrection, um, and just the way that Christianity is so entwined with white supremacy and patriarchy and nationalism, um, and of course none of that is new. But it begs so many questions of what it means to raise two white boys, U.S. citizens, in some sort of a Christian context. Um, And I love these two beautiful, remarkable human beings. So much my heart could explode. Um, So there's a lot there. And I think, you know, I'm not sure that I found any clear, simple answers. And I think the thing that I found most valuable was knowing that I'm not Carrying those questions alone. Um, And then I'm going to be asking these questions for the rest of our lives. Um, I guess some of the maybe takeaways from these, you know, the amazing wisdom of these folks include, you know, being willing to ask the question over and over, showing up, um, doing our own work around whiteness or masculinity and letting our kids see us do that work. building community to help us struggle with it, Um, letting our kids be loved by a lot of different grown-ups who have different worldviews than us, Um, talking about race and gender early and often, Um, bringing our kids along into the joyful, beautiful, powerful work of standing for justice, Um, and maybe in a lot of ways just sort of muddling through. (laughs) Um, We're all going to make mistakes um and what we can model is what it means to admit when we're wrong and to apologize and to grow and to muddle through some more
0: yeah i appreciate that thought of muddling through (laughs) (laughs) i think that is really is really a good way to put it um (laughs) i don't know i mean muddling through is i think the best we can do sometimes Mm -hmm. um and uh but but muddling through while 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 continuing to ask the question i guess that's maybe the, the important part um i remember uh i mean The the past summers unrest around the the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, that opened up I think a lot of conversations in our house about race, Um, and I mean for the better for sure. Um, I remember though, at the same time, you know, when we're trying to figure out how to talk to our son about this, um, there are all these like uh, I don't know like Twitter influencers kind of asking the same question like what does it mean to be an anti racist parent or something, and the things that people I think come up with are very weird and <laughs> very confusing ideas about you know how they practice anti-racism i mean you know some people are um maybe some people are muddling through more than others i guess but i think um just the same uh, muddling through is probably the way to put it um but but asking the questions and keeping and, and staying open about it is such a um an instructive thing that's that's a good <laughs> a good word for sure
2: yeah and i think jennifer harvey who writes on raising um doing anti-racism parenting i think she's really brilliant um and just can talk about it in such simple practical you know real ways uh of talking about conversations that i can totally imagine popping up in my house you know and just she's she's got clarity that i really appreciate
1: that's cool um well thinking more maybe about some of the the themes that come out in the text you uh you mentioned earlier you're um very against the nuclear family and i think uh it's important to keep talking about that um you know the family is often a a target of revolutionary complaints and protests uh one of my favorite passages in the communist manifesto is uh there's a part where marx and engels say something like you accuse us of uh wanting to like release children from the tyranny of their parents and they say uh yeah, like insofar as parents can be tyrannical, that's just true, I guess. We do want to do that. <laughs> so, um, you know, people see uh, the bourgeois family as as holding up oppressive relationships as a kind of training ground for for reproducing um, harm in the world. And I think a lot of the essays in this book deal with that issue in interesting ways, trying to reimagine, like you've been talking about here, you know, expanding our concept of the family, challenging ideas of safety, et cetera. So what sticks out to you about that conversation? I mean, how can we imagine just relationships with families and and to families uh, in this struggle for, for justice?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very fair critique um, of family. And, you know, on the other hand, I love being married to Aaron and that partnership, the intimacy, the struggles, the commitment, the sacredness is one of the things that I value most in the world. Um, and we work really hard to build a relationship that's just and equitable. Um, and I believe that there's something sacramental about marriage. And I think that the circles of people we choose to love and care for and walk with through this world matter. But any time that love and relationships or anything for that matter, become institutionalized, um it's worth being skeptical. Um and the nuclear family has done a lot of damage. Um, and we have to pay attention to the ways that, capitalism and racism and patriarchy and toxic church doctrine, et cetera, et cetera sneak themselves in. Um, two of the chapters that I, I love, and I think are really interesting in this way. Um, Nick Peterson writes the first chapter, and it's just beautiful um, about the ways that um, he struggled with letting go of his own expectations around masculinity, and just the beautiful vision of of wider families and chosen families. Um, And Sarah and Nathan Holst have a really interesting chapter where they record a conversation between themselves examining where patriarchy is showing up in their own marriage um, when their son's about one years old. Um, And it's so vulnerable um, and I think offers all of us a really interesting chance to challenge ourselves in being honest about the ways that family and marriage can be really toxic if we're not actively doing our work.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, that too, I mean, that goes back to the sort of muddling through question, I guess, is uh, what's so valuable about the text is uh, performing that muddling through in so many different ways with so many different contexts, etc., you know, there's, uh, I think I want to ask too, there's obviously a lot of challenges in being a person committed to to justice and raising kids. Um, but maybe you could talk even more about some of those benefits. We've talked about it a little bit already talking about your, um, communal situation and, uh, the lessons that you've learned kind of being, you know, invited into this, uh, life by virtue of your, uh, growing up in, in a certain kind of vision for the world. Um, but how does that commitment to justice help you to parent better? You know, as you, uh, not only are faced with all these problems, what are the things that maybe provide you opportunities that make you feel like, yeah, this is a a thing, a a commitment to the world that's actually helping me find my own way through guiding my children into this world.
2: Yeah. I think there's so many delights and gifts in it. Um, I think that some ways having kids immediately gives your heart a serious stake in the future. Um, I cannot not care anymore about the future of the planet um, or a just world when my kids are walking into that future. Um, I also think that the values I hold for justice are in a lot of ways, how I want to treat people. So I want to treat my kids with that same kindness and justice and love and empower their hearts and imagination. Um, I think about D.D. Dee Dee Risher in her chapter on spirituality talks about how as parents, we need to squander times with our kids. Uh, and I really love that idea. And it's also just, True, uh, um, that I have I've had to learn how to spend long stretches of time not being productive. You know, I have to spend hours lying on the grass and watching earthworms, and I have to stop and admire the shapes of the clouds. Um, and my kids really help me to slow down um, and help me fall more deeply in love with the world. Um, they help me to to pay attention. They notice what songbirds show up at our bird feeder and they notice what songbirds don't show up the next year um and they wonder why um they keep my heart alive um with joy and pain and gratitude um they help change me and help me grow and love more deeply and it's um parenting is exhausting and terrifying um but it's also pretty magical and mysterious
0: yeah man Um, It's a it's a good word Um, squandering your time with your Mm -hmm. kids is uh, it's good, but such a hard thing to learn how to do or to even, uh, you know, adjust your brain to doing it, especially. I mean, again, during a during a a, a weird year where people, um, you know, our our workspaces and our home spaces have completely collapsed together and then trying to figure out how not to Mm -hmm. (laughs) be productive is so difficult, but uh, a good lesson to learn. well, let me pivot a little bit. I mean, not in a big way, I guess it's kind of actually similar in a lot of different ways. But um, some some of the stuff in the book um, really challenges us to think about our relationship to like the relationship between um, the outside world and our like and our family and our home bubble <laughs> or whatever we might want to call it, and like how we negotiate some of those boundaries and like the fixity of those boundaries. And I think it's all very fascinating. One of the sections I think that really sticks out to me um, along these lines is uh, called Where to Live by Frida Berrigan. Um, and it's a really fantastic chapter. I think it's, um, I was, just, you know, I picked up the book. I skipped around a lot in it, and this is the one that I think um, really stuck with me um, after skipping through uh, some parts. The, the very beginning of the section is framed with this interesting observation um, about, um, again, something uh, another part of pandemic life that is now very normal is, you know, you can get anything delivered to your house with very little human contact, even, you know, um, the the pizza guy comes and drops off the pizza box outside or something. You know, you don't don't have to talk to them even. Um, And that's such a weird thing. Um, Frida Berrigan says that it creates a type of placelessness and prohibits us from knowing the people around us, you know, even the delivery person, which I think is an important thing to think about, you know, the ways that uh, labor is hidden and, uh, you know, just something appears at your door or whatever. And uh this is such a challenging chapter and, and the whole idea of like i think putting down roots or 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 finding a place is such a challenging thing. Um I am a complete introvert and I find it really hard to talk to people especially outside my house. Um I I think this also probably stems from a very weird type of like alienation thrust upon me by capitalism and you know a thousand other different overarching structures of oppression that have warped my brain to be the way that it is. Um but I I mean I think so much of your book uh, is, is about drawing out these things that are, um, you know, we should pay more attention to about the, our connection to our place or um, the connection to our neighbors or, uh, you know, these types of things. So how do you think we start to rewire our brains and work through these things that, uh, you know, thinking about community um, better in light of the tough apprehensions
2: we have? Yeah. Frida's chapter is so wonderful. Um, and I too am a very <laughs> serious introvert. Um, And I think you're right that capitalism pushes us to prove that, you know, we don't need to rely on other people. Um, And I actually think that kids are a great gift in shifting us away from some of that alienation. Uh, Kids have this uh, remarkable gift of pushing us out of our comfort zone, whether we like it a lot, a lot. Um, But I often think back, you know, 12 years ago when I moved back to Detroit, um, we got baby chicks. Um, to start raising chickens in our backyard, and the chicks were this like instant magnet for kids in the neighborhood. And suddenly, parents were coming over to find their kids, and we started learning the names of our neighbors and chit-chatting. Um, and over the years, those relationships have grown. And I think that that kids offer that too. Um, we spend so much time outside, um, you know, whether it's just sitting on our front porch or walking the neighborhood in, with strollers or rollerblades. Um, and we just end up being really present and available. Um, and I think things start to shift. Uh, I also think in a similar way that growing food is sort of like that, that you put in a small garden and suddenly you have more tomatoes than you can eat. Um, and you have to start giving them away or they go bad. Um, and I think that I think community happens when you live out of a sense of abundance rather than scarcity. Um, and when you can ask for help, um, you know, simple things like I see that my neighbor has a lawnmower and we have a power drill, and we don't need two lawnmowers or power drills in our neighborhood. So how can we ask and borrow and share? You know, can we take that risk of asking a neighbor for an egg or a cup of flour? Um there was a really powerful moment for me years ago. We have we have fruit trees in our yard and the cherries were ripe and you know, a neighbor came over and said, can, you know, can we pay you $5 to pick a bag of cherries? And we said, sure. Um, and that evening they knocked on our door and they said, asked us if we wanted to buy a pupusa dinner for $5. And I like handed that same $5 bill back to them. And it was like this beautiful realization of what local economy could look like. Um, you know, and in our neighborhood, we have a family that bakes bread and makes queso, and another neighbor who has a restaurant in her basement, and we have a beekeeper who harvests honey, and we have folks who can do electric work and roofing, we have somebody who does acupuncture, someone who knows medicinal herbs, we have a piano teacher and and on and on, and like and how much less do I need capitalism and corporations and Amazon if I know my neighbors and how much sweeter the harvest tastes because of it
1: that's so cool um it's uh it's very cool especially because I think you know I I live in a city in Toronto um which is like and unlike Detroit I think in a lot of ways at least as far as I can understand um and you know I know some people a handful of people in the building that I live in but uh certainly not uh in the buildings around me and things like that And this pandemic, I think, has really forced people to reevaluate their attachments to other people around them or their detachments. Uh, I'm really encouraged by things like, you know, the growth of things like tenants organizations and people thinking more about mutual aid, etc. But uh, how great would it be if, you know... Um, people were able to maybe build those networks before the crisis hits and then maybe have a a different um, foundation on which to draw instead of trying to build this stuff from scratch. Um, That just strikes me as such a a forward thinking and backward thinking and, I don't know, lots of other directional ways of thinking, (laughs) way of being together. Um, Yeah, it'll
2: be really exciting to see what things look like on the other side. You know, where do mm -hmm. we put our priorities and now that we know this sort of thing could hit at any second, what, it, what do we invest in and and how do we build it?
1: Yeah, I think so. Well, we'll be asking you more about that, I guess, <laughs> as things go on. Um, I want to, as we come close to the end here, talk a little bit more about the, the book in this way. Each section uh, offers a, a short set of questions for uh, reflection that provoke readers into using it in a particular way. So, we said it's it's not a handbook, but it is something yeah. like a technology maybe that people could use um, a good you know convivial tool that people could use to uh, improve their lives or uh, think things through. So, are there important standouts from those questions? Things that hit you particularly hard, or open something up for you, or questions that as you were developing them, or or reading them, or asking them yourself, you thought. Yeah, this is actually, uh, you know, we're on to something here. I hope that people are able to to benefit from this exercise.
2: I love that distinction between reading a book and using a book. Um, and I hope that's true. Like, I hope this book gets so used in daily lives that it gets covered in spit up and mud and spaghetti sauce. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, for so many months, I've been reading and hearing these questions in my head and on on paper and on computer screens, and I'm so excited to start asking these questions with other folks that are reading the book. Um, and most of the questions were written by the contributors. and I really love a lot of the overlap. Like one of the questions that feels like it continually sticks out is like, who are your people? <laughs> Find yourself some people. Who can you call when you're struggling with how to handle a question around race with your kids? You know, who do you? Call who can laugh with you at the mistakes you're making, who are the people your kids can lean on? That there's just such a hunger for for one another. Um, And parenting can be so lonely and isolating. Um, And there's so many ways that it's really deeply personal decisions that we're making. And we often hold those decisions so private. Um, But every decision we're making also has political and structural ramifications. Um, So I think there's an important work of how do we bring these questions and decisions into a more public space where we can share ideas and dreamings and imaginations with one another. Um, I'm also finishing up uh, working on a a study guide for the book. Um, So it really could be used in um, church groups or, you know, with your your parenting groups or whoever, whoever it is that you could sort of engage some of these questions with, um, to help imagine new possibilities. Um, and I really love all the questions. I think as I was sort of flipping through it today, some of the questions that kind of really pulled at me are from Marsha Lee and Ian Sawyer's chapter. Um, and their first question is how do we choose life in the face of death? Um, and there's so much that's crumbling around us and the forces of death are so powerful. You know, the survival of humanity and the earth is literally a question in the coming decades. And so how do we, how do we choose life? (laughs) How do we bring children into this moment? Um, how is having children itself an act of hope and an act of resistance and a way of throwing in, uh, with the struggle and future, um, of this earth?
0: Yeah, they're good questions and uh, very powerful, just like you're saying. Um, Well, in the conclusion of your book, you write, we are organizing ourselves for the long haul. Um, Kind of going off the note, you just mentioned about hope, actually. Uh, It seems like passing on a commitment to justice through parenting and uh, just relationships to parents and kids is a pretty good way to do that. I I don't know, like, what does that look like? I I guess it's such a a broad thing to ask, I guess, but like, what do you hope people take away from this book uh, into their daily lives and uh, their their own relationships? Um,
2: I know for me that the book has seeped into like every crack of my life that, you know, we've changed patterns that we hold and it's affected decisions that Aaron and I are making or even the words that we speak. Um, and I have so much gratitude uh, for each of the people that wrote the book. Um, and yeah, just a lot of love and admiration. really grateful to have been able to ask some questions and gather some stories. Um, When I think about my hope for the readers, I think I never imagined that this book would land a year into a global pandemic, Um, and so I never imagined how tired parents would be, that I think, you know, parenting is always exhausting, but pandemic parenting is really something I never could have imagined. And from the earliest dreams of this book, I wanted to make sure that we were never making a book that was saying, here's the right way to do something or in any way saying that parents aren't doing enough. Um, That, yeah, we're all muddling through. And I hope that these pages are company for that, um, that it's bits of stories and wisdom and imagination and joy um, and a reminder that we're not alone. Um, Yeah, and also I think, learning that a book is never finished and there's more stories and voices and challenges. Um, And so I hope that the book lands as a gift to readers. And I'm really grateful that we all get to keep writing the next chapters with our lives.
1: That's a great uh, note to end on. I think Um, we uh, look forward to the sequel when you gather a bunch of other people together and, you know, in several decades when we get the grandparents version of the book. Um, yeah, it's a, a really, really amazing project. And like I said, I don't even have kids, but I feel like it was, uh, you know, it, it, the book really made me reflect on um, the kids I do have in my life and uh, the friends I have um, who have children, uh, including Matt and many others, you know, my siblings, et cetera. So um, really, really, really valuable uh, work that you've all done together. And thank you, Lydia, for, for editing and bringing that into the world. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you should definitely pick up a copy of Lydia's book, The Sandbox Revolution. You can get it from Broadleaf Books from other places, too, but that's the publisher. Uh, Let's see. Definitely subscribe to G's. Like we said a bunch of times already, it is the best thing out there. You will not be sorry. You'll love it four times a year, Uh, and it's a great community as well. Lots more than just a magazine, so check that out. Our music is by Amoria Armstrong, and our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. Oh, I forgot to say, too, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash themagnificast. All right, we'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't
0: be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. That we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no damn between us and our Lord
1: Jackson, you keep your hoods up You keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up where you keep your hoods up and you stay up late Oh, don't mind the cold night But we might mind if you leave too soon So come on now,
2: it's still early